Thank you for being here. Some of you are returning from uh, yesterday's talk. Thank you for coming back. Thank you in general for coming to visit us at Tuckerbank. I'm Ron Highfield. I teach here. Uh, I've taught here for 33 years. Uh, today we'll be uh, talking about a theme from my book, my recent book from, uh, from 2021. Uh, it's uh, the cover and title is here, The New Adam, What Evangelicals, uh, What the Early Church Can Teach Evangelicals and Liberals About the Atonement. Uh, those of you who are here Wednesday, endure just a little bit of review for those who weren't here because I want to introduce, kind of get you situated briefly in a very uh, compressed way. So I want to review uh, the biblical message of salvation, especially focused in the New Testament, is that God saves and perfects the world in and through everything Jesus did, his teaching, his acts, his death, his resurrection, his reign, and return. All of it is about saving uh, the world. Um, the atonement, which this book is about, the word atonement can be used in, two, in broad and a more narrow sense. And it's very important to keep the two distinguished when you're having a discussion because you talk past each other if you don't. In the broad sense, sometimes atonement is used for everything Jesus did in salvation. So it's almost synonymous with soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. So everything Jesus did, does, and will do to bring about salvation, atonement. But it's also a narrow sense, which I think is the more common. Um, that is, it's focused on the part of salvation that Jesus accomplished through his death. One thing I do in the book is I try to uh, help the reader um, get out of the pattern of just focusing narrowly here on the cross and understand the broad work of Christ, and the cross is the center of that work, but it's not alone. You can't understand the cross without the rest of it. Uh, otherwise, you will create uh, theories of the atonement that uh, distort it. Um, the book addresses two problems. That is, what drove me to write the book was the problem of a modern audience. I, I teach undergraduates here in general studies courses, um, and um, uh, and, I, and you all just relate to people in our culture. And people in our culture, even believers, uh, may not understand what they're saying when they use phrases like, Jesus died for our sins. We know when to say it. We know how to sing it. But do we think it? Does it, does it do we create any thought in our mind? Or Jesus saves. What, he saves us from what? To what? By what means? Uh, these are questions that should uh, have some cognitive value as well as just a feeling you have when you say the words. The second problem that the book addresses is, you know, what does Jesus' death, given its context with the whole life of Jesus and the resurrection and the reign, but what does Jesus' death contribute to our salvation? What is Jesus' death about? How is it salvific? Um, two guiding intuitions that led me to believe that there should be able to be a book written about this. You should be able to think about it. You should be able to make some progress on it. That is, if this message is true, the gospel message, 
ought to be able to grasp its truth to some extent. Right? There are deep mysteries in our faith, but there is some light there as well as deep darkness. Um, so we should be able to grasp its truth to some extent. We shouldn't just have to accept it um, without having any cognitive value to it and just uh, say it because we're supposed to say it. The first believers encourages, this encourages me because the first believers were very happy. They were rejoicing at this amazing thing that had happened among them. Uh, and they seemed to uh, understand what it meant and how it works. And so they were overjoyed. So maybe we can recapture some of that. Maybe we can enter into their thought and see what insights they had that caused them to rejoice in such a way. Now, this is still reviewed um, for those of you who uh, were not here Wednesday. So the two dominant theories uh, among Protestants, um, Roman Catholics is similar but not, not the same, um, uh, are the Evangelical Protestant Penal Substitution Theory, PSA for short, not a medical exam, but, but PSA, uh, and the Liberal Protestant Moral uh, Theory. Um, I'm not going to talk about this, although I wrote a whole chapter about it. I'm going to talk about it here. Um, the uh, Protestant, you've heard it, you've sung it in some songs, and especially some pop songs. I'm not going to repeat them. Um, but it's the dominant theory among uh, evangelical Protestants, which is, of course, you know, bleeding over into the Churches of Christ. Um, the essential points that I reviewed yesterday in greater detail uh, are of the Protestant penal substitution theory. Because sin insults God, even the teeniest sin, if there could be something. In fact, Calvin said there's no such thing as a small sin. Uh, he criticized the Catholic distinction between venial and mortal sins. And Calvin said there are no venial sins. All sin is mortal. Because sin insults God, the greatest good, sin is the greatest evil, infinite in its demerit, and hence it deserves infinite punishment. Okay? Sin, even the smallest one, deserves uh, hell for eternity. Two, because God is just by nature. God doesn't have a choice. It's God's nature to be just. God must punish sin according to what it deserves. Implicit in there, and sometimes it's explicit in these uh, advocates, is the definition of justice as giving everybody their due. Giving everybody their due. So God must give everybody their due. And their due is infinite punishment. You're getting the logic here. This is review. But third, but God also, in addition to having to punish sin, wishes to save some sinners. And this places God, uh, yeah, places God in a dilemma. A dilemma. Uh, theorists use this word. Uh, the death of Jesus is the way out of the dilemma. God punishes Jesus instead of us and lets us off. And therefore, God's mercy and justice are satisfied. And the dilemma is resolved and sinners are saved. Now, I talked extensively critically about this theory on Wednesday, but I'll just summarize the two central issues that are problematic. One, this theory, DSA, Protestant uh, satisfaction, I mean, uh, substitution, 
uh, it views the atonement as solving a, divi a divine dilemma as well as a human problem. You've got a dual uh, need there. God has a need, uh, and humans have a need. And secondly, it views the human problem solely as liability to divine retribution or guilt. Okay? So that's the main problem. And I argue that not, that's not really the main problem, and certainly there is no dilemma for God. Uh, but today's talk... Um, Jesus as victorious warrior and new beginning. So, the saving work of Christ is described in the New Testament in many ways. I'm not even going to list all of them, but sacrifice, representation, it's a victorious battle, it's a new beginning, uh, reconciliation, redemption, and a bunch more descriptive words that describe this work. Um, now, I believe that it makes sense to understand, you just you know agree or disagree with this, but it makes sense to understand, first of all, that the work of Christ is a unity. It's not a bunch of different disparate, disparate things. It's a unity. So there must be some unity to all those things. So I believe it makes sense to understand the unity of the saving work from its end, that is, where it's headed. The final thing, backwards. Uh, so, the resurrection to eternal life and immortality and glory and incorruptibility, 1 Corinthians 15, that's where it's headed. Let's interpret it backward, and that will give it a unity because everything Jesus does is moving in that direction. So, it's the narrative, it's the line that, that directs from his work to that end. Now, don't you hate authors who quote themselves? <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is what I said. Um, because it begins and ends in the one God, the event of reconciliation must be one throughout. That to me seems to be so funny. The unity of any event is revealed in the final end it achieves. In the case of Jesus' death and resurrection, the end is eternal life in union with God. In my view then, every aspect of God's reconciling work in Christ should be understood as a moment, a factor, in the process of healing human beings' wretchedness, which includes our bondage to sin, death, and the devil, and bringing them to full realization of their created greatness, which is described in the Bible as being in the image of God. And our destiny is to be the image of the image of God, who is Christ. So, Jesus did everything that had to be done to bring us from our lost condition to that final end, eternal life. He overcame sin, death, and the devil in all their forms and manifestations. So the grand narrative, the unity, the story that tells it all, I use, and this is a big word here, it's a Greek word, transliterated in, in the English letters, but uh, is theosis through recapitulation. Don't be put off by this word that Gregory Nazianzus coined in the fourth century. But, uh, so what is recapitulation? Recapitulation, you can find it in uh, uh, Ephesians 3, uh, 110. Uh, but it means to sum up, bring everything together. Uh, and in, in Ephesians, in the first few chapters of Ephesians, but also in the Church Fathers, especially Irenaeus, and 
Athanasius and others, Jesus passed through all stages of human life. He became one of us. One of us. And Hebrews especially emphasizes that in the book of Hebrews. Include, uh, including death and resurrection. And unlike all of the humans, from Adam to you and me, he got it right. That's what re uh, recapitulation means. He did it over, he summed it up, and he got it right. <coughs> and theosis, this Greek word, um, means basically Jesus, in, in his incarnation and resurrection, Jesus so united us in himself, through himself, to God that we might share in God's immortality, glory, and incorruptibility. And those are the three words Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 for the glory of the resurrection state. Uh, theosis means deification. Okay? Don't be put off by that word. Uh, it, it means becoming like God, participating in God's eternal life. That's something the New Testament teaches. So don't be put off by the, uh, by the uh, kind of... Uh, idea that human beings become God. That's not what it means. It means we become, uh, participate in those glorious attributes of life and immortality. So according to the New Testament, Jesus deals with certain problems and accomplishes certain tasks that had to be done for our salvation. All of these things are about us, for us. And as I will emphasize again, it's not God's problem that Jesus is working on. It's our problem, our problems. I want to talk first about Jesus as covenant representative. There are five I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one because it's the, it's the most difficult one for, for us, modern people, to get into and think. So Jesus had to deal with the broken covenant and the unfaithful people of God. We look back at the New Testament and we don't feel it. We can't feel it. But if you read Paul carefully, he feels it. Read Romans 9 through 11. Um, he feels it. God has made promises to Abraham. His people are unfaithful. How is God going to do what he said he was going to do through the people if they're unfaithful? Jesus dealt with that problem. This text very important, often neglected, Romans chapter 15. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. What does that mean? On behalf of God's truth. Proving God is true. God is true when he made promises. He's going to keep those promises. And you're going to see how true God is to his promises. And, and Jesus made that clear. So that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. They're not confirmed apart from him. They're left hanging. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus is a servant to the Jews to, to confirm the promises. To show that God is true. He really did choose Abraham. He really is going to bless the world through his people. Jesus was born under the law, says Paul. That's important. He was born under the law. He remained faithful un unto death. He endured the curse of the law. Galatians 3. 
and he sealed the new covenant in his blood. What in the world is the curse of the law? Reading it from a modern post-Reformation perspective, we hear eternal damnation. We hear the curse of anybody who sins and violates God's law, even in the teeniest little part. But that's not what Paul's talking about. So listen to the text. We can't read all of them, but listen to some of the text that Paul is reading. Not, he doesn't read, I love Luther in many ways. If he had a certain problem that he got fixed by trusting in God's grace, that's fine. But Paul wasn't reading Luther. Paul, Paul wasn't a monk in a monastery struggling with guilt. Okay, So Paul is reading, uh, and the problem to which he's been dealing, as a Pharisee, as a persecutor, and as an apostle. Deuteronomy 29. It's just a wonderful example. When such a person hears the words of the, oh, this oath, he's talking about the, you know, the second giving of the law, and they invoke a blessing on themselves, thinking, I will be safe, even though I persist in going my own way. They will bring disaster on the watered land, as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. You wonder why the New Testament is so concerned about the forgiveness of sin. Here's something that says, the Lord will never forgive them if they break my covenant. How are people for breaking the covenant? So the Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and his zeal will burn against them, and all the curses written in this book will fall upon them. All the curses written in this book. When you read Galatians, think the curses in this book. What are the curses written in that book? And what are they curses for? Okay, all the curses in this book will fall upon them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. All the nations will ask. They're going to be embarrassed among the Gentiles. Why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them. Gods they had not known. Gods he had not given them. Therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought all the curses written in this book. In the furious anger and great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. As it is now. Paul could read that text and think, as it is now, the Romans dominate, and the people are scattered all over the world, and the, and the temple is in the hands of a corrupt group. But look what happens in Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and curses I've set before you come upon you, and you take the to your heart, whatever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord, your God, and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I've commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. What, what do they need to do? They need to repent, return, come back to the Lord. How do we reverse the curse? 
on the minds of first century Jews. That's on the mind of Paul when he writes Galatians. Now, he knows how, but that's the problem that's been solved by Christ. The Pharisees, John the Baptist, and many other movements in the first century Judaism, in addition to Paul, were aware of this problem. God's work in the world is come to a bottleneck because it's unfaithful people. And until this people becomes faithful, that work can't continue in the world, to the whole world. So, as the Messiah, the King, you know, we have a hard time understanding why, how one person could do something in a moral sphere that could benefit others, to represent others. But in the ancient world, I mean, even today, you know, if someone captures your president, like you know, in Ukraine, if Zelensky was captured or killed, it would really affect things. Uh, the Messiah, the king, could act for the people. Again, think in Deuteronomy terms. So Jesus, Paul is arguing, accepted the curse that rested on the unfaithful people. But he remained faithful until <coughs> and through death. So Deuteronomy 30, return to me with your whole heart and your whole soul, and I will restore your fortunes. Listen to Romans 15. And that said to that again. Accept one another then, just as Christ the Messiah accepted you. In order to bring praise to God, I tell you that Christ has become a servant. Isaiah. Servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, both the blessings and the curses, and the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Opens now up to the Gentiles. Okay, I know that is the hardest one uh, because you've got to get back into the first century world. We can sort of do that if we'll read the Old Testament and try to read it as Paul read it. Jesus is the new Adam. That's where I get the title of the book. Actually, it's in, in Romans 5 and well, 1 Corinthians 15. It's second Adam. But I want to use the term new Adam. By passing through death to eternal life, he made a new beginning for human beings. That's written throughout John and Paul in the New Testament. Here's a new beginning, uh, a new creature, a new anthropos, a new man. Uh, so it's in Christ, Romans 8, 3. Let's read that. Now, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who's given life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that's NIV, and it's, it's a bad translation. Uh, to be a sin offering, that's not what it says. The ASV says, and for sin to condemn sin in the flesh. That's almost literally what it says. Uh, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled for men and us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What in the world is that talking about? Jesus went through death in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in this flesh, he condemns sin. What does it mean to condemn sin? I read across this old book. It's got a, uh, yeah, Charles Scott. 
1927. And he said this, which just opened my eyes to something I hadn't seen before. And in the act of dying, and he's commenting on Romans 8.3, and in the act of dying, he divested himself of that flesh, the medium through which he had become involved in the human experience of the hostility of the impotentates and powers, the spirit forces, which had usurped authority over men. He escaped their dominion, nay more, he broke it. God raised him from the dead. I was just thinking of imaginatively, there's lots of science fiction which does this, but I was thinking how Jesus, again, this is an obscure passage, but you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the legion of demons that he allowed to go into the pigs. The demons went into the pigs, and the pigs jumped into the lake and drowned. And, and the demons were gotten rid of. That's the, the metaphor that immediately came to my mind. Jesus accepted our lot, and he passed through death and left the demonic dwelling place behind and passed through death to a new, uh, uh, so, new life. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah. So it says he divested himself of that flesh. Yeah. Is the flesh in this particular... Uh, quote, understood as the habitation of the demonic? That that's the, the flesh stayed in the grave and was not... Raised. I don't want to read that my analogy into him, but he is focused not on... You see, he's focused not on guilt, sin as guilt, and in need of retribution, but sin as a power that takes that. over. And the, it's, and the seat of its power in Paul is what he calls sarks. Flesh. Without that flesh, there's no place uh, for the power to work. Again, I, I, this is a long, long discussion, but we often uh, want to protect creation as being good and not confuse it with SARS as yeah. the fallen. So we're not fallen. Yeah. here. Right, right. We're not. Okay. But I hope I didn't confuse you with the pigs thing. <laughs> <laughs> But that is in the likeness of sinful flesh. He passed through death. He left that behind. He left that sphere behind. Um, okay. And I've got a time limit. Some people. Jesus is a victorious warrior. Uh, by defeating... We're, part of the New Testament understanding is that we're under the domination of a power. Sin is pictured in personified terms as a power. So is death, and of course, so is the devil. But he won that battle uh, by not sinning, by not giving in to temptation. So uh, Jesus didn't go into the underworld like, again, there's all sorts of creative things about the three days uh, in the underworld. But we don't have any record of that in the New Testament. He just didn't go into the other world like Beowulf and wrestle with Grindel. Uh, Jesus <coughs> said, I'm not going to disobey my father. Jesus wasn't intimidated by death, and he remained faithful unto death. And the battle was a moral battle, a battle against being dominated by fear of death and fear of pain and suffering, which is the, de which is the devil's uh, strategy for making us do what the he wants us to do. 
So because he defeated them in his own case, it's very important. First, Jesus. Jesus defeated them. In his case, he defeated them for us. Because we rest in his victory. We're joined with him, as Athanasius says. I love this quote. Um, this is not quoting myself. So. Death used to be strong and terrible. This is the 320, 320 or something like that. Death used to be strong and terrible, but now, since the sojourn of the Savior and the death and resurrection of his body, it is despised. <coughs> and obviously, it is by the very Christ who mounted the cross that it has been destroyed and vanquished, finally. When the sun rises after the night and the whole world is lit up by it, nobody doubts that it is the sun which has thus shed its light and everywhere driven away the dark. Death is not the same after Jesus conquered. Um, fourth, Jesus is God in action. God was in Christ reconciling the world. You're going to be talking about that, right? Um, Christ did not have to make it possible. That's maybe the most controversial thing I'll say in here. Uh, Christ did not have to make it possible for God to be a forgiving God. To solve a divine dilemma between the absolute necessity of giving everybody what they're due and the wish, the desire to be merciful. And Jesus is the kind of way between that horns of the dilemma. That's not correct in my opinion. Uh, again, I'm quoting myself, sorry. Uh, he is not compelled by some inner, this is God. God is not compelled by some inner judicial necessity to take revenge on sinners for their insult and injury. No. Instead, God forgives and takes the insults and injury into his boundless life. Christ, this is in italics in the book, and it is here, but you can't say it. Christ is in time. God's eternal act of forgiveness and reconciliation. He's not the ground of it. He is it. He is the act of forgiving and reconciliation. It happened in Jesus. Jesus' suffering in his flesh corresponds in time to God's eternal absorption of sins, insult, and injury for our salvation and glorification. Christ's death did not enable God to forgive. It is the actualization and concrete form of that forgiveness. Forgiveness is the negative sign of the new life that Christ made actual by passing through death and entering into glory. And we are invited to share with him through faith and baptism in Christ's death in the likeness of sinful death to likeness of sinful flesh and in his glorious new life. The grand narrative. Um, I'm using the fifth one as the all-encompassing narrative to include everything else that I've mentioned and more. Jesus reverses Adam's fall. You can see this in Romans 5. And becomes the one faithful Israelite. The one remnant. The one servant. The faithful servant who adheres and uh, uh, gets rid of the curses and brings the new covenant. He passes through death and brings creation to its glorious goal. And we share in his accomplishments through faith and baptism. 
Again, we will read Romans differently after you think about this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. He died to sin, right? That's what chapter 8 says. He died to sin. And we die by dying in him and with him. Right? Now, if we just die, we'll get rid of sin, all right? But that's a period victory, right? You, just, you die and you're dead. But to die and leave sin behind and pass through to life, that's what Christ did. That's what we can do through him. So our dying is not, we don't die to sin in our own, well, through our own death. We die to sin through his death in baptism so that we don't have to die as sinners when we actually die our physical death. Or don't, okay, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, where he got rid of the likeness of sinful flesh and established a new kind of human. He died that death. We don't have to die that death. We can die the baptismal death and live with him so that we don't have to die. You and I don't have to face death as condemned sinners. He did that for us. We were therefore buried with him through baptism and to death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we have been united with him in a death like this we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed of sin, passed through death. But do you get to the other side to a glorious life? Through Christ it's possible. In our own selves it's not. Now we died with Christ. We believe what we live. We live with him. But we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. We left it behind. He went through it. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. He died to sin. That is, it doesn't have any more power over a dead and resurrected person. It only has power in our mortal flesh. It's 35 minutes. I'm going to turn that off. In uh, the life he lives, he lives to God. I'm almost finished, so we're going to have time. For the love of Christ, the message of salvation, back to this. For the love of Christ compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. We don't have to do that. We don't have to die that death. We have to die another kind, but not, not, not the one he died. And therefore, all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What does it mean that he died for us? I contend it doesn't mean he was punished infinitely, because God has to punish sin. He died the death that we would have to die because we're sinners. Now, we don't have to die as a condemned sinner, because he did that. We 
come uh, into him through baptism. So from now on, we, re we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation, the new, uh, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And this is from God who reconciles us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We have some time for questions. Uh, I'd like to go back to the curse. Yep. Galatians talks about the curse, and I wonder when Paul says, um, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be cursed. It kind of sounds like Paul was having a bad day, or he's angry. <laughs> is there more to it than, is he saying, you're already under that curse? I don't know if he's referring back to the Deuteronomic or, or the, the curses associated with the law or not. Um, he, he uses that word, I'm not the law, right? I think it's more like the implications of the Psalms in Galatians 3 than in the law. But that's how I would read it. I don't know how to answer your question. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I can speculate, but that's not by spirit. Yeah, thank you so much for, I mean, this perspective that you've given just seems inherently more like healthy and life-giving than PSA, mm -hmm. I, I would say. Um, and, and several years ago, I, uh, you're probably familiar, Scott McKnight wrote a book kind of on different atonement. And he kind of likened like the six or seven different theories of atonement to um, golf clubs in, a, in a, a golf bag, but you kind of pull them out as needed. What, what is your thoughts on that? Are you like, oh, okay, they all make sense, or is it just I, this? Uh, I like to see them in a greater unity than golf clubs in a, and then our, uh, our sort of like, envisions mm -hmm. it sort of like communication. When I need to talk about this, I'll pull this one out. Yeah. And, but I like to see them as more of a, um, a unity in our condition. That is, each of the ways st uh, that Jesus' work is talked about is unified by what it does for us, our condition of needing this or that or the other to bring us to that, that glory. I'm just, a, I never like to th see things uh, in a chaotic way. Oh, drives me crazy. And maybe I. Maybe I tend to force things together that don't belong together. And I, I, I admit I could do that. But I like to see things in a unity. I so see. I want to see a unifying principle. So teleology is a unifying principle. You move toward an end, and you do whatever it takes to get to that end. Yeah. And that unifies them. And then uh, on a, a sub-point, what is your kind of thoughts on uh, Rene Girard's work on kind of the scapegoat theory of the time? Uh, you know, I mean, it's... Um, that's a, an anthropological, sociological thing that uh, I, I never really thought at all that helpful. Okay. Um, 
it may be in, in certain societies uh, that, that that's what happened, and you you expend this anger on one thing. But ooh, that doesn't sound like the New Testament to me. It, doesn't Hebrews 10 kind of answer into that, that once and for all is different than the, the repeated remembrance of the sin every year through the animals? It, it's a victory as opposed to a substitution. Yeah, it, 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 it fits. Yeah. It fits because, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't, I'm not a Hebrews exegete. That is not a, a, a specialty of mine. But when I hear that text now, I hear the problem of sin Yes, we need to be forgiven, but we need to be liberated from just doing it over and over and over and over. In Christ, it's been conquered and done, and, and it's over. There's a new kind of life that is beyond that power, and we can live into that through the Spirit and draw on it. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, we anticipate the resurrection when it will become a full-blown participation in that reality. But <coughs> the Spirit is alive and well, and Christ is alive and well, we're drawing on it now. Oh, I see it. You were next. This resonates with me so much better than that PSA, but what do you do with the passages like when you just read the passage where no longer counting men's sins against them, and then all the God's wrath? Yeah. What, what do you, how do you take that and say, what well, doesn't really mean that? I understand if you, I believe, and we have Old Testament scholar here, but and a couple of them, but um, I believe that if you look those wrath passages, even when they're in Deuteronomy, all, and especially since we get to Deuteronomy 30, we, I think it, almost all of them could be viewed as wrath to provoke repentance, not wrath to even out things. Right. You know, the, the scales. PSA operates on the scales. Right? There's infinite sin, there has to be an infinite compensation. That's quantitative. Um, God's wrath in both the Old Testament and I believe the New Testament references to it are uh, have a purpose other than retribution. You just you get it because you deserve it. You get it because God wants you to come back to him. I mean, read Judges, you know. You know, it's just over and over and over. And all of it is, uh, if they're unfaithful, they get conquered. And then they repent, and then, okay, God relents and forgives. And N.T. Wright says, when you hear the phrase forgiveness of sins in the New Testament, you should think, return from the exile. The exile is over. Because it's talking about Israel's national sins, not each and every breach of the eternal law. If we, if we read it in its context of history, uh, and, and, and PSA wants to read everything in terms of this metaphysical world in which sins have weight and they balance, and, and you have a balance of goodness and, and badness. And those, that eternal weight, those scales have to be balanced. And God must balance them. That's not the way the Bible thinks. Other, other questions? I'll ask another one then. Yeah. Could you comment on 1 Peter 1 24? He himself bore our sins in his body. That fits perfectly with Romans 8 3. He bore our uh, uh, sinful flesh and he took it through. And yes, uh, he did uh, accept the curses that were uh, in the law 
on those who broke the covenant. Uh, but the question is, does that mean he bore, uh, see, he bore sin? Yeah. That, um, was he punished for our sins? Or did he do something uh, with our sin that liberated us from that sin? <coughs> I, you know, again, I, I would have to sit down and think through <laughs> exactly my answer, but that's the best I know. But the language, he bore our sins, suggests the covenant relationship yeah. that he is taking on as covenant representative. I, I would agree with that. Again, I, I wish in, in teaching theology and writing theology for 40 years, I wish there were a perfect formulation that would, that would raise no objections and everybody would say, I see that perfectly clearly. But I haven't found it and I haven't read it. But, I, but I, I think we have to venture forth and try to articulate our faith in clearer ways, even though we're not going to be perfectly successful and quell all you know, doubts and objections. So this is my effort to do that. And I believe it could be helpful, mm -hmm. at least for the worst parts of ESA, which I think is putting God under a law that's not his own meaning, uh, making justice is giving everyone their due, a kind of uh, necessity for God, but making his love a kind of, you know, again, it's, it's not necessarily an optional thing, but it's not as um, rigorously necessary as justice is. I think there's something wrong with that. Okay, well, we're getting near the end of our time. Appreciate your um, patience. Thank you for coming.